This is the fourth week of Easter. Um, for those who maybe are una unaware, we actually, is it third or fourth? I think it's fourth. The fourth week of Easter. Um, it, for those who might be unaware, the, the church actually does celebrate Easter for a long period of time. Um, in our modern churches, we tend to have a few holidays. Uh, those holidays are um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Easter. And each of those days, except for Christmas, just kind of gets a one-off hit uh, traditionally in, in the modern church. But actually, it's the case that the church celebrates Easter for a period of 40 days. Uh, and then, you know, leading up to the Ascension, 50 days out. Um, the, the idea being that what, what Christ has done in defeating death is worthy of more attention than what one day could possibly uh, provide. And also, the Gospels and uh, the Epistles themselves provide so much material concerning the resurrection that you can't get through it in one week. And so, um, if you've been with us since Easter, we have been going through the different Gospel accounts, looking at um, what the different Gospel writers have been uh, including in their accounts of the resurrection. Before that, when we were celebrating Lent, we were going through the book of John. And if you remember, the central theme that we were highlighting in the book of John was this idea of blindness and vision. And we see this incorporated in today's text, and we're going we're gonna to look at it in detail. But just to remind us, Nicodemus in John 3 shows up at night, He's walking in the cover of darkness, and those who do their evil deeds do them at night. And so Nicodemus can't see, and yet he's supposed to be the leader of Israel. He's a blind guide. And then we pick up the theme again and again, culminating in John 9 with Jesus healing the blind man uh, who does not recognize Christ, but in healing the blind man, he both sees naturally and God opens up his eyes to see spiritually and apprehend that Christ is more than just a prophet. He is the Son of God. He's the true Messiah sent by God to redeem his people, Israel. And so at, at that point, the, the, the Pharisees, at the end of the exchange with Jesus, they say, uh, you know, teacher, do, do we, are we also blind? And Jesus responded to their question, reinterpreting it as them asserting. He says, because you say that you see, you remain in darkness. And so this passage uh, although we've, we're, we're definitely focusing on the resurrection, the theme weaves back into blindness and vision. And so uh, I hope we uh, notice that today. So uh, regarding this passage, I want to look at four things. The resurrection account, very briefly, as we touched on last week, that each of the gospel writers includes different details of the resurrection, but in no way do those differences amount to contradictions or the uh, falsehood of one gospel over against the other. Um, it's a common claim by those who reject the scriptures, who reject, reject the claims of Christianity. Uh, people that might be called the, the, the new militant atheists is the, is the phrase for those types of people. They, they claim that the gospel writers having their resurrection accounts all be different means that one of them is lying. But we looked at, and we're going to see again today, that the gospel writers are in harmony when it comes to the resurrection, as well as the, the ministry and pu you know, public works of Jesus. But specifically, they just include different uh, little differences. If you remember, we, I gave the illustration last week of a group of kids who uh, have done something wrong. They've been called into the principal's office. What's the first thing you do with your buddies 
before you go into the principal's office, you get your story straight. It's actually the case because the gospel writers have differences, it proves that there, there was no covert uh, operation to unify the gospels before they were written. They weren't colluding together to disclose the tr- uh, to hide away the, the truth and present a, an alternate version. It's actually the case that the differences as, as well as the embarrassing stories about the gospel writers and the apostles themselves prove the authenticity in terms of literally uh, speaking. So this gospel, of course, has some differences uh, in the resurrection account. Then we're going to look at the, the time of, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, what happens when these two uh, disciples are going up. We're going to look at Jesus' response to their unbelief. This is a, a tragic account, at, like we saw last week uh, and the week before with, with uh, the gospel writer uh, of the book of John, where the disciples are going fishing again. Jesus, if you remember, had called his disciples to come and be a fisher of men, the, the idea there being that they were fishermen. Originally, their fathers were fishermen, and they, as good Hebrew sons, were, were trained up in the skill and trade of their father, and they were just reverting back to what they had done before Christ called them. It's as if the, the life and ministry that they experienced with Christ was kind of put on hold or just terminated. And so, likewise, here we see the doubt in the disciples' uh, conversation and breaks our heart. And yet, again, we see how Jesus doesn't react the way that you might think he would. And then finally, we're going to look at this vitally important uh, discussion about the breaking of bread, how Jesus is recognized in that moment So uh, Luke provides the same witness as the other gospel writers concerning the resurrection, as we just talked about briefly. This encounter with the angels, we saw last week how the encounter with the angels, they were on fire, they were bright, shiny. The, the, The idea being that as we see heavenly encounters in the gospel, we're building this composite picture. And that, as I've been mentioning, is gonna culminate to a magnificent encounter in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Uh, after the ascension, sometime after that, G- John has this encounter, and, and he sees the glorified and ascended Christ, and he sees him as a man who is white and on fire. Here, they're dazzling again, and they're uh, in white appearance, and we saw last week how their appearance actually caused the Roman soldiers to fall to the ground. Likewise here, these, even the disciples are terrified and afraid. Uh, the, the women are, are terrified and afraid. And this encounter with the, the angels, it kind of presents another aspect that we haven't yet seen. So not only do the gospel writers include different information, but combining them, harmonizing the accounts, actually provides a composite picture, uh, if you will. They have technology these days. If you've ever used Google Street View, they don't actually take 3D pictures. They take 2D pictures, and they use software to blend them together in such a way that as you're moving around in your Street View, you kind of see what you would see if you had two sets of eyes rather than one camera uh, and you were standing on the street. Likewise, we do the same thing. By combining the different resurrection accounts, we see a more complete picture. Luke 24, 5 And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember. Now, right here, the the angels are beginning to posit a question to the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Right? 
it's, it's a question that rebukes in a way, because as Jesus said to the Pharisees, God is not a God of the dead, but a God of living, for all live to God. And so the angels are kind of, they're beginning to put this question to the women, uh, don't you know that he's risen, specifically with this phrase, remember how he told you. And it's at this point when the women are beginning to remember because they're being told to remember. At this point, the women are remembering that Jesus Christ himself told them that he would be raised from the dead. And yet, at this point, when they're going to the tomb, they totally forget. They have forgotten completely that, the, that Christ was supposed to rise from the dead. We're going to see that echoed again in the discussion on the road to Emmaus. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Notice that word, must be delivered. The necessity of Jesus Christ's crucifixion is asserted positively here in such a way that it is necessitated. It's, it's mandatory that Jesus Christ must be delivered and then be crucified and on the third day rise. They recount the resurrection, telling the women to remember that it's necessary. And in this way, their testimony from the angels of the necessity of the death completely invalidates any trivial explanation for the atonement, such as the, what, what's called the exemplary uh, theory of atonement. And that's a big word, and it just means that some, some people actually believe and teach that what Christ did in going to the cross was merely to provide for us an example of how to be patient in the midst of suffering and to be quiet while uh, your tormentors or, or persecutors are, you know, coming after you. That in no way could be could be the case. What is necessary about that? There are other moral teachers and prophets from other religions who've, surfed, uh, who've suffered worse things possibly than the crucifixion. And, you know, Isaiah himself was drawn and quartered. Uh, they tied horses to his limbs and, and ripped them apart. Uh, speaking, of course, being a picture of the, cru- of the cross. But uh, Suffice it to say, Jesus' crucifixion was not necessitated just to be an example for us of how to be patient under suffering. Granted, it is an example of that, but it is not merely an example of that. The necessity aspect of what the, the angels say here mandates that Christ did something on the cross. And what we believe as Christians is that on the cross, he did pay for the penalty which you and I were due according to our sins, trespasses, and rebellion against God. So, uh, I think it's vitally important to see that even in the midst of the resurrection accounts, the, the message of the gospel being not only did he raise from the dead, he also must have suffered in the way that he suffered. Jesus couldn't have just like fallen off of a cliff and then paid for our sins in, in that manner. Uh, he, he had to suffer. Hearing the words of the angels, of course, the women remember, eight, verse 8, and they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. The reason it says eleven at this point is because Judas has already gone to his own way. We are often like these women who know the truth but forget. I hear over and over again from young believers, oh, I already have read that book, or I've already heard that message, or I already prayed today. You need remembering. You need to be told over and over again the truths that are found in the gospel. You and I, as we go about our day, we forget the gospel in a functional way. 
when you're arguing with your spouse, when you're arguing with a friend, when you're having a disagreement with your parents. These are times in the midst of the frustration and the just day-to-day momentary temptations where we forget the true claims of the gospel. The true claim of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he in himself is immeasurably worthy of our praise, honor, and admiration. And having him, is be- having his presence, knowing him, having the fellowship of his spirit is better than anything else. And so every sin that we engage in, every temptation that we succumb to, can be understood as a, a simple forgetting of the gospel. And so in this manner, you and I, we need to remember, these women were told by Jesus Christ himself to their face that he would be raised from the dead after three days, and yet they were completely surprised when they showed up at the tomb and he wasn't there. We're in deep need of remembering. So these two uh, leave Jerusalem, and they're going to Emmaus. It doesn't say specifically which ones they were, although it does say Cleopas, and then afterwards it says that Jesus has been revealed to Simon. So it could be the case that Simon Peter was there or uh, you know, Cleopas, uh, I forget if that's Simon Peter. doesn't really matter. There's another guy involved. It's not stated who he was. It's possible, it's my opinion, that it was Peter and then another disciple who wasn't one of the 12. And uh, they were both going to Emmaus for some reason. We're not quite sure. But they go on this journey. In verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So what this means is that Jesus is intentionally, again, seeking out the apostles. We saw this last week in Jesus, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, when Jesus arrives at the beach um, and he intentionally greets and seeks after those guys who had reverted to fishing. He intentionally shows up in the midst uh, of of their room and declares peace to you. Jesus is going and seeking out these disciples who are, are headed to Emmaus for some sort of business, and he goes up and uh, stands with them. He, he starts walking alongside them. This verse is an amazing verse, verse 16, because it speaks of the sovereignty of God and the superimposition of the action of the Holy Spirit in the midst of situations that are totally in the control and direction of God. Somehow, God in his sovereignty is acting in a way to blind the eyes of the disciples to the, um, the presence of Jesus. It says, verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Remember this theme of blindness in sight? In this way, the disciples have become blind at this moment because Jesus has a operation that he wishes to do on their heart. Their eyes are veiled, their minds do not perceive nor understand he's there. Though they see him with their eyes, they cannot understand that that is Jesus. And yet, at the same time, Jesus wants to go in and do something. So Jesus actually feigns ignorance here. Uh, Integrate that into your uh, means of appropriate manners of God to operate with his people. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, I believe that it is true that God does not tempt us, but he does test us. And it's clear that he tested the Israelites. 1 Corinthians 15 states that God tested the Israelites in the wilderness to see what was in their heart. In verse 17, it says, what is this conversation? Now, Jesus, the, the, the truth, the way, the one who has, according to Colossians 1, all secrets of wisdom and knowledge, 
he, he is asking this question, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, notice the full effect of this question that, that it has on the disciples. They're on their way to Emmaus, which is a day's journey from Jerusalem. And they stopped dead in their tracks. It says, they stood still, looking sad. They've, they've apparently been taken off guard by this man's question. Jesus asks to see what the disciples would say. He doesn't ask to trip them up. He wants to know what's in their heart. He wants to see what he has to deal with on the operating table, as it were. Unfortunately, we see the, that these disciples have lost all hope concerning who Jesus was. Verse 19, he says to them, What things? And they say to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed. What did Jesus ask Peter uh, when he was uh, engaging Peter to establish him as a pillar in the midst of the apostles. Who do you say that I am? After asking him, who does man say that I am? Some say a prophet, some say a teacher, some say Elijah. Jesus asks Peter directly, who do you say that I am? Peter is revealed by the Holy Spirit to have the knowledge of Jesus Christ's divinity. You are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus then rewards Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal to this, but it was my Father in heaven who revealed it to you. And yet here, what do they call him? Jesus, a man of God, a prophet, mighty indeed. No longer the Son of God. No longer the one sent to be the Redeemer of Israel. how he was a uh, man before God and and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Here again is that echoed lost hope, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What they're saying in that verse is that they thought he was the Messiah. That's what it means to be the one to redeem Israel. So no longer is Jesus the son of God, divinity. We cover these, uh, these two ideas that Jesus was both God in the flesh, Emmanuel, residing with his people, and the Messiah to redeem and establish the throne of David once again. Those two ideas are uh, of necessity unified in the person of Christ. And here the disciples contest both of them. They said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They're basically saying, yes, this just happened, and no, there's nothing we can do about it. This guy's cold. He's dead cold. Three days afterwards, there's no hope of resuscitation. There's no hope that he survived the crucifixion. That's actually a a thing that's possible. And so they, they did not hold out any hope. It's done. The matter is settled. And now the full effect of what's happened is starting to, uh, you know, be impressed upon them. They've lost all hope that Jesus is the Messiah. And com- this account, combined with the account of Thomas and the other apostles, we see that no one, none of the apostles, nor the women who were with them, none of the disciples saw the resurrection coming. Though they were told by the mouth of Jesus Christ himself in the flesh that he must suffer and then three days be raised from the dead, all of them were so uh, filled with doubt and, and probably traumatized by the whole experience, they had been taken over by fear that they had forgotten the word of God that had been implanted in them. 
Everyone was surprised. But Jesus had told them ahead of time. Look at his response to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, that's the mind, and slow of heart to believe not just what I said, but all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Again, that idea is hammered home in Luke. The necessity of Jesus Christ's atonement. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, again, integrate this with your vision of God and how appropriate God can respond to his people. He calls them fools who have hearts that are full of sloth and, and doubt and unbelief. This is the condition of the disciples. This is the condition that we have often. Because the following sentence, verse 26, restates that uh, what the previous verse said, Jesus says that all of the, what the prophets of Israel have spoken speaks about his death, burial, and resurrection. He says in that verse, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And that is directly connected to all of what the prophets have spoken. He then continues to hammer home this idea and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, uh, the things concerning himself. So at this time, just to be very clear, there was no New Testament when this was actually happening. When Je- now, in the, in the gospel here, this is the beginning of the form- formulation of the New Testament. But at the time that Jesus was encountering these two disciples, the only thing that would be considered scriptures by the writer uh, Luke at this time would be what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And this phrase, Moses and the prophets, he's not talking about when Moses shows up in Exodus. The word Moses is a a reference to the books that Moses wrote, which is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. Another phrase for this idea is the law and the prophets, not just Moses and the prophets, because the law was considered at the time to also include Genesis. When you and I think of the law, we think of like the last half of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers. We don't really think of Genesis as being part of the law, but it is. It's part of the giving of the law. And so these Hebrew scriptures, as we're taught here, must be interpreted to demonstrate Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. His coming to be Emmanuel, God in the flesh, to solve the great problem of how does a holy God come amidst the people who are full of evil and sin. But not only that, who is going to be the great king to restore the line of David? We've talked on the, uh, this idea a lot, especially in Christ in the, New Te- uh, Christ in the Old Testament, which is a, a wonderful series. If you've never heard it, I encourage you. It's on the website. But in that series, over and over again, we looked at these two necessities, that God would come and live in the midst of his people, and that David's throne would be reestablished one day by a righteous king. And we saw how that ev- time and again, Israel would be in engaged by God, yet she would rebel and turn away. And time and again, God would raise up a king of of righteousness, and then his sons would fall away and turn after the gods of of, uh, the surrounding nations. And so here we see clearly, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So what that means is, no matter what your means of interpretation, it is necessary for you to be able to find Jesus Christ being prophesied or alluded to in the law and in all the prophets. And the the phrase, the law and the prophets, though it does specifically mean 
the Pentateuch and the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12, and then the 12 minor prophets, all, all of those are necessary to see Christ in. But when you see the phrase, the law and the prophets, it usually, you can infer that the entire Hebrew scriptures is being identified. So it directly means those two things, but also the stuff that's in the middle is alluded to when that phrase is used. So the Hebrew scriptures, again, must be interpreted to reveal Christ, or we've totally missed the point. That's honestly why I feel it's so hard for us, as especially young Christians, to actually engage the Old Testament, is because we don't even know we're supposed to be looking for Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. So at this point, Jesus again feigns another motive to uh, see what they would want to do. So he has just spent, um, you know, it takes about, the fastest I can casually walk is about uh, a mile every 15 minutes. That's a moderate pace. And so if it's seven miles, they're at least on a journey of an hour and a half. So an hour and a half sermon from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the person full of wisdom and knowledge, he probably gave a very concise summary, and he utilized his time well, and uh, the outline afterward was perfect. But he says to them, everything, everything that's in the scriptures, he at least touches on, that, that concerns himself. At this point, he wants to see, are they responding? Have they, have they, are there are, are there any signs of life? They're, at first, they're full of doubt. They've lost all hope that the resurrection was going to happen because they even, you would have thought, oh, wait, the third day, that might have jogged some memories. It didn't. And so they've lost all hope. The resurrection is not even on their radar, and he wants to see what's in their heart after speaking to them words that Jesus says, my words to you, they are spirit and they are life. He wants to see if any life has taken place. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. They arrived at Emmaus. He acted as if he was going further. Again, Jesus is feigning a motive. He's, he's not, I'm not going to accuse our Lord of lying, but he certainly is using tactful methods. Um, he, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them to stay. So they had at least wanted this guy that they didn't know was Jesus to stay around. Now, I don't know if I, you know, if, if it were me and someone preached on the caliber of, you know, a Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney, someone who had the ability to demonstrate Christ in every chapter of the Old Testament, I probably, whether that person, whether I knew it was a superstar theologian or not, I probably would want them to stay around for a while. Just because that's an amazing thing to be able to do. And to these guys, it probably was news. Now, you and I, we've had the benefit of thousands of years of theologians in the church faithfully interpreting the scriptures, demonstrating that when Isaiah his suffering servant in Isaiah 53, when, when that suffering servant is going to the slaughter, uh, we, you and I, that's not news for us that, that that's Jesus Christ. But for these guys, this is a worldview paradigm shift. They had totally missed the point of the Old Testament scriptures. And at this point, they do encourage him to stay. Now here, we begin to see something beautiful. Remember how it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him? Remember how they were in the midst of this time, their ears were open, but their eyes were closed? 
At this point, something amazing happens. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And look at this. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. If you are not amazed at the beauty in Luke, I don't know what you read. I I don't know where you'll go to find better beauty in literary form. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Just as soon as they were able to apprehend and perceive that this is Jesus, then he leaves. What beautiful language. At first they can't see him, but when he breaks the bread, then their eyes are open. It's as if he's breaking scales away from their eyes. This happens over and over again with Paul. Uh, It happens at at a later point in the book of Acts. Paul can't see Christ, and then he does see Christ, and as soon as he sees Christ, he's then blind. Same thing happens here. They're blind, then they see him, then he vanished. Absolutely, surely, the ascension is being foreshadowed here with Jesus disappearing. This is, this, in this way, Jesus is doing things such that the gospel writers would interpret them properly, record them, and the, the beauty through the scriptures would flourish. The disciples here reflect on what's happened. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to, the, to us on the road, while he opened to, up to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were gathered with them together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. They who were slow of heart now have hearts of fire, and in this way, they immediately run and go tell the disciples. Now again, we've already mentioned it's a seven-mile journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem, and here they're, they're uh, traveling at night, a time that's extremely dangerous, uh, that you would get you know, robbed or murdered, have your possessions taken from you whenever you leave the city gates. And here... Uh, that's why the imagery of Christ suffering outside the gate is so beautiful is because being outside of a city at night is a terrifying proposition. And yet, because they can see, they're willing to go through the risk of traveling at night. And so they run back to Jerusalem, not even afraid, because the news is so great that they had to tell the other disciples. They told again what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Um, If someone wishes to go get the kids, we're going to close here in about three minutes. It's necessary, absolutely, to hear the word of God, but you must encounter God the word. So many times in our churches today, we emphasize the preaching of the word of God, and yet communion is relegated to once a month, once a quarter, maybe, once every three, four months. It's absolutely vital that we hear the word of God. In no way do I wish to disparage the teaching of the word. I believe in it strongly. I try to work as hard as I can to make it profitable to you. Jesus, when he's restoring Peter, as we saw two weeks ago on the beach in John, he says to them, feed my lambs. And the way that you are fed is through the word of God. But also, you're also fed at the table. In this passage, we see their eyes are closed to see who Jesus is, and their hearts are cold. This is the state of someone who is either unbelieving totally or in a state of unbelief. And at this point, they are being engaged by God himself. Does anybody have a remote that they can hit? They're being engaged by God himself in the flesh, 
and their hearts of stone are becoming hearts that are on fire. What does it say? Look at it, look at it again, verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us? What had Jesus said earlier? They were slow of heart. How, how is an engine when it's cold? It's really bad. It's really bad to take a cold engine and jump on the highway because the coldness of the mechanics really mess up the function. But they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us, uh, while he opened to us the scriptures? The word surely indicates, demonstrates, and teaches, teaches us of Christ, but it is at the table where we recognize and experience him. That's why every service that we have weekly, and in many churches, most churches throughout the world, the service actually crescendos into communion at the end of the service. That's why. This, this passage, this, the ideas presented here are the reason why the word is not the central point of the service, the communion is. It's our fellowship that we take together in the midst believing that Jesus Christ himself is present. It's, uh, it's sadly the case that in most of our churches today, communion has been sidelined and the teaching of the word has been elevated to a position that I don't think is appropriate when the communion table is neglected. Now, I don't wish to bring the word down. I wish to once again restore communion to its rightful place. That at this table, we are engaged by Christ himself, that in the breaking of the bread, we meet him. We can see him. We perceive him. And so it, it is the case, historically, if you ever have a chance to go to a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, or even a Catholic building, take notice what's at the center of their building. It's always the altar. It's always the communion table. And that, sadly, is not the case in our building. It may be one day. But but Emily and I had a, a great chance during Urban Nights to go downtown this week, um, and we actually got to tour Westminster Presbyterian, which if you've never been to Westminster Presbyterian, please go uh, December what year, 23rd, 21st? This year, every year at Westminster Presbyterian, the Dayton Philharmonic, along with the Dayton Philharmonic Choir or something, um, they, they join together and do a presentation, a, a performance of Handel's Messiah. And uh, if you've never been there, it's only like $20. In fact, you can get in, uh, you can get in without paying the ticket uh, because they didn't even check our ticket subs. Don't do that. Pay the money. <laughs> Don't do that at all. Pay the money. Go. It's beautiful. The, the Handel's Messiah is a masterpiece of Isaiah and the Gospels and Revelation and the epistles woven together to demonstrate Christ's coming and, and the reason for Christ's coming is to go to the cross. But we got to go to Westminster Presbyterian, and we've been in there many times. I've been in there many times. Emily, you've been there once, now twice. And we actually got to go up on the altar and see uh, the layout. The, the gentleman showed us uh, the organ that they have there, beautiful organ. But at the center of that building, and then we went across the street to First Lutheran, I, I just made this observation once again that you've got the word here and the reading pulpit here, and at the center is the communion. And I think that's a vital sign architecturally that the main focal point of the service is encountering Christ through the breaking of bread. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.